0: back to Radio Brews News, the podcast served with minimum chips. As always, I'm joined by my good friend and colleague, Peter Mitchum. Pete, welcome back.
1: G'day, mate. G'day, listeners. Good to be back. That doesn't mean that, like we, we, we're still pretty regular. We, I think we might have missed a, a couple of weeks there um, due to work commitments uh, and availability of guests and that sort of thing, but I think we're, we're sticking pretty much to the course.
0: Yeah, look, it was nice. Even when that one got up, um, a couple of people tweeted, oh, it's great that you're still out regularly and things like that. So, you know, people, we didn't have any complaints that we hadn't been out for a a week or so, um, including from our host, uh, who uh, our guest, um, Jane uh, Flavel, who was no doubt waiting patiently for us to uh, to get the show up. But, uh, yeah, so as everyone knows uh, at Brews News, we do the best that we can uh, with what we've got. And uh, that's you and I. (laughs) <laughs> so, anyway <laughs>
1: mate what have you been up to uh mate i've been doing a little bit of product sampling uh getting in touch with some beers i've got some uh, some corporate stuff to come up and uh a couple of them you know every now and then they want uh i guess entry level sort of stuff so sometimes you just got to go back and refresh your memory a little bit in the palate and uh for your tasting notes and and bits and pieces like that, so uh, that, that's that been my week, we've got school holidays down here in Melbourne, uh, hopefully by the time this goes to air, it, it still will be, it'll be relevant, so uh, have, kind of confined to barracks and just having a nice, a bit of an easy week, what about yourself?
0: Yeah, it's been a little bit, this yeah, no, very, very much the same, it's been a quiet week, um, so I've got a lot of corporate events coming up between now and the end of the year, which is good, so uh, that, that keeps me busy, but um, no, just... Uh, like you trying a few beers, um, what what have you been trying? Prof in in the the beers that you've uh, been sampling, what have you been trying? Anything new? Uh, well,
1: new and old in terms of uh, the new endeavour, uh, true vintage amber ale and pale ale, yeah. the two thousand twelve release, uh, which I, I found really interesting. Uh, Andy Stewart, the brewer up there, was kind enough to send me a couple of each. Of uh, the the eleven and the twelve of the amber and the pale, and so I was able to do some you know direct back-to-back um, comparisons, um, and just yeah, just pinning a, a piece at the moment because like uh, look, you and I both I guess have, have not been shy in our not criticism, but uh, I guess our um, lack of confidence in, in the ability of the beer to sell up, um as sort of as directed by the the brewer. So it's it's an it's still it's it's a very interesting beer. Uh, yeah,
0: yeah. We'll see how it goes. You know, I, I, look, I really came out quite hard um, in in, in the first year um, because I, I really thought that they did overreach with the whole vintage thing. Last year, I spoke to um, the guys and sort of to find out a little bit more, and they're a little bit further down the track. And you know, they they are making a big thing of getting the first to harvest. Uh, or you know, the um, malt, uh, vintage malt, and they buy enough and put it aside and you know, they, they buy the hops. Um, I, I still do worry a little bit about this whole vintage thing. Um, I thought last year's, um, on release, both of last year's beers were beautiful. I really enjoyed the um, the, the, the light uh, fruitiness of the uh, Pale Ale, and I really enjoyed the Amber Ale as well. Um, and their, their beers are just, you know, really were so nice Upon release, that I really wondered why you would um, be encouraging people to put them down. And I, you know, I, I, like you, I've got a few reservations about whether the beers will actually develop. Um, that's not for us to say, of course. You know, it's, it's, it's beauty is in the eye of the beer holder. Um, and whoever tries them, but, uh, yeah, no, I'm actually going exactly. to be speaking to Andy today. I was meant to speak to him this morning, but he got held up. Um, so I do want to have a chat to him this afternoon. Um, and possibly even do a podcast with him at some stage to talk a little bit about it, because they have been uh, spruiking their medal wins. Um, they've, they've done very good, uh, very well, including winning a uh, silver medal at the World Beer Cup, which is absolutely nothing to be sneezed at. Silver medal, um, yeah. The question that I wanted to ask, uh, though, was, you know, the beer that was judged, um, when was it brewed compared to when it was entered in the uh, competition? Because I know that they don't, Whilst they, um, you know, have their vintage ingredients, um, they buy the ingredients for, for for the year, but they don't just brew once. They they have a couple of brew cycles during the year. Um, and I was just really interested if uh, you know when they're spruking their. So was it a
1: was it a salad beer that was it,
0: exactly it, exactly, or was it a fresh beer that or was entered? Fresh. Yeah, exactly. Because I think that's you know, and I think that's a really interesting uh, point to us. They're making on one hand they're making a big question about their um or a big issue of their medals deservedly so but they're also talking about vintaging and you know does was it the vintage beers that won the gold medal or the fresh beers in which case is that a you know further weight to our argument that maybe it's the uh it, it's a little bit of spin and uh, everyone knows that we we love a good marketing line here prof so uh, yeah so look
1: at i had a I, I had a good weekend uh obviously this week well i had half a the weekend Last weekend uh, being, of course, uh, a staunch Hawthorne Football Club supporter and a Melbourne Storm Rugby League supporter. So I had uh, a grand final on Saturday and a grand final on Sunday. Luckily, the, um, the Storm got up on the Sunday, which made up for the Hawks not getting up on the on the Saturday. But I thought, oh, look, just as a, you know, what, what do I choose for my beers? And I thought, well, you know, in the in, the, uh, in the spirit of the Storm, I'll go with something local and something, um, you know, fiercely independent. Uh, and so I got through the day with uh, Mountain Goat Hightail Ale, because coincidentally, uh, began in the same year as the as the storm did. There you
0: go. So that was some nice serendipity. Well, nice serendipity because who are we speaking to today, Prof? Well, there you go. Nice segue. Mate. The way I've worked that <laughs> most seamlessly. You are a pro. Today we're
1: talking to Cam Hines, who is one of the co-founders uh, and the co-spiritual uh,
0: head heads of um, of Mountain Goat. Brewery itself, and uh, why are we speaking to Cam? Why today of all days, Prof? Or why uh, at the why, moment? Why today? Not necessarily why not? today because we spoke to him well, a, a, a week but last, last week. Yeah, we did. Um, but uh, well, look,
1: just a couple of things happening. Um, obviously, with their fifteenth birthday, and and I did I wrote a piece for Australian Brewers News last week, just sort of saying it's really it is nothing to be sneezed at when you look at um, you know how difficult it is to. To get a small brewery off the ground, particularly in this town, in this country with, uh, you know, a a fairly big major duopoly, uh, for a small player to become as well received and such a, I guess, an honest and strong, trustworthy brand, uh, in the, in the, in the market, uh, I think is a, is a great achievement. And, um, we do talk to Cam about how that's come about
0: and what they do differently and all that sort of thing. It's a, it's a, a cracking good interview. Well, let's have a chat to Cam. Let's do that. And now we're joined by Cam Hines, one of the two founders of Mountain Go- Goat Brewery. Cam, welcome to Radio Brews News. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's good to have you back. We Go. should
1: actually say, hey Matt, we should say welcome back to Cam because Cam was uh, the guest, I think, like our first official guest on the second episode ever of Radio Brews News. But back then, rather than talking about what we're going to talk about today, which is Mountain Goat specifically, Cam... Uh, talked with us, I think with Scotty Vincent, about um, the general nature of craft beer. So I guess we're going to kind of follow on from that, but make it a bit more goat-specific.
0: Exactly. That was, uh, gee, you've got a good memory, Prof. That was a long, long time ago. I might have to make sure that that's still in the stream as well, because we changed servers. So uh, I might have to put that one up for listeners who want to go back and listen to the collected works of Pete and Matt. And, and some very fine guests, of course. And some very fine really, guests.
1: They really carried us in those early days.
0: <laughs> anyway, enough about us, Cam, uh, mate. Big year, um, twenty twelve for Mountain Goat. Uh, it's your fifteenth anniversary.
2: Yeah, it's quite, it's quite amazing. Sometimes it feels like, um, you know, a few years. Sometimes it feels like fifteen years. <laughs> uh, but it's, yeah, it's amazing. It is amazing. I think that we're, um. that that we've got this far because we certainly didn't think 15 years ahead when we started we sort of any time we were thinking probably you know two or three years ahead and once we got our first site our first actual brewery over in crown street in richmond we sort of thought this is it we've made it we've done it and um really didn't think beyond that
0: (laughs) and i mean it's fair to say that you know mountain go you know um, like matilda bay talk about they are one of the early craft breweries and uh uh, things, but, you know, they were bought out very, very early. Did, you know, it's fair to say that you are one of the or, – or Mountain Goat are one of the um, craft beer pioneers in terms of independent, you know, you guys own, brew, market, do everything yourselves um, without having the, the rich uncle to call on? Yeah,
2: well, that's right. And I guess there aren't too many – people at this size that are doing that still and, I mean, as you know, we do have a contract brew component to our business for some of our beer uh, but we still, we're investing significantly in our plant here in Richmond, we just put in a new brew house and new new uni tanks and just bought 800 more kegs and all that and that's always a very important part of our business. So, yeah, no, it's it's, um, it's certainly, it's probably not the easy way to do it, staying independent but it's the fun way and, uh, you know. Frankly, I've never really worked for anybody else in my life, and I don't know that I'd be able to, so it's sort of the only way. It's
0: worse than a <laughs> career like, in the public service. You reckon you're unemployable now?
2: <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> God, I, what else I do, and I, and I wouldn't be good at taking commands from anyone, I wouldn't think.
0: <laughs> Mate, just tell us, we, we might go back to to those early days. Um, you and Dave were old mates uh, and decided to start a brewery after David come back from overseas. Is Is that right? Sort of. Dave
2: had lived overseas when he was about eighteen. He spent a couple of to- couple of years in the States, and he he saw craft beer then, and he came home and he started home brewing. So when I met Dave, he was a home brewer, brewing every weekend, and um, keeping this hilarious little journal, um, which we've still got. It's very funny to read back through that. Um, and he, yeah, we were introduced through a mutual friend. I was in the music industry business. So I was booking a band and the drummer for one of the bands I looked after lived with Dave and said, you you and Dave would really get on. You guys should meet. And, and we did it and we got on and, but we weren't, we weren't, you know, we weren't best mates or anything, but we certainly knew each other. And then when I got to I was backpacking in Canada and, um, and I saw craft beer up close for the first time and tasted the first beer that I actually really liked and thought of Dave straight away and sent him a postcard and said, come on, we've got to, we've got to start a brewery.
0: As you do. <laughs>
1: yeah, well, probably- it's kind of it's kind of gone down in I guess in beer folklore as as you know one of those eureka moments where you're you're backpacking through Canada and you taste the beer and you kind of send the postcard to Dave, you know, bang! I well, now I get what you've been trying to do all this time. Now we have to do it. Yeah, I really didn't. I mean, I thought it was fun what he was
2: up to, and I tasted his beer, and I probably politely said, "Oh, yeah, that's that's nice," but <laughs> I, mean, I didn't really get what he was up to you know home brewing but he'd seen it in the states and he was just trying to emulate those those great craft beers and um and when i actually saw them in you know happening in canada and i walked into a little pub and i saw all these all these tap handles for these local little brews i'd never heard of i thought oh cool you know i thought melbourne could absolutely have this sort of a movement and um so we thought it would happen in Melbourne, but it's taken a hell of a lot longer for it to really uh, happen in a big way. It's really only been the last couple of years. It's really firing up like we always thought it, hoped that it would, I guess.
1: Did your background in, um, in promoting bands and, and being involved in the, in the music biz, do you find there's some parallels or some similarities there in that, you know, what's big today is, you know, gone tomorrow and uh, that sometimes the fans can be perhaps a bit fickle?
2: Yes, absolutely, and this is this is what sort of gave me the confidence, I guess, because my background in the music industry, booking these little independent bands and nurturing their profiles, this is you know that's for me, that's what this is all about. It's sort of nurturing the profile and building it slowly for for longevity, you know. But yeah, you know, a little band like Friends or Rom, for example, you might not have heard of those guys, and I'm showing my age here, but I used to book them in Melbourne and. Not, and we just put them in little, little, you know, gigs at Punners club and the art house and didn't want to do anything ever at all mainstream and wanted to stay out of any sort of media other than street press. And um, so I, I, that was the way I liked to do it and felt natural to me and sort of real. And so when I saw craft beer in Canada, I just thought, geez, if we were to do this with Dave's homebrew, we'd just do it exactly like you nurture a little band. And so we approached those same pubs. We didn't want to go into any sort of traditionally boutique kind of pubs. We went to the Great Britain in Richmond and then Napier and Fitzroy and and nice down to earth drinking holes. And that's where we sort of that's where we started it from because it felt real to us, I guess.
0: And how hard is it to to sort of keep um, people coming back? You know, w- without stunts and the, all of the publicity. You know, um, I think Pete was uh, getting to how hard is it. You know, to to stay trendy, um, when you're small and you you don't have the big hype machine, um, of of a big band.
2: It was it was really easy early on because um, we were the only guys sort of doing this. I mean, there were, I guess, the Grand Ridge was going down in Gippsland, but we were very inner city and we were going to inner city cool sort of pubs and uh, media seemed to love it, or well, the local, you know, rags seemed to really like it because we were two young guys sort of, I guess, seen as upstarts brewing in the shadows of CUB around the corner. And, um, and so, yeah, we, it was very easy to get um, editorial space back then, um, and, and we, were very, we were very, very fortunate. Harder these days probably because there are so many um, little craft breweries out there that have all got a story, and uh, frankly, some much more handsome young brewers than um, than, Dave, than Dave
1: and I now are. <laughs> and it's interesting that you uh, you name checked um, Grand Ridge because I guess without Grand Ridge, uh, you may not have I guess got the start that you have. In that, Dave uh, came on board I think as a as an assistant brewer, and I don't know if, if Eric Walters is listening. Um, you might want to turn off now. Legend has it, perhaps. Uh, some mountain goat beer was being brewed on a commercial scale out of Grand Ridge and perhaps Grand Ridge didn't necessarily know that it was happening in the early days
2: Oh no I don't know that that's the case I mean our initial couple of batches we brewed with Gavin Gamble in the Scottish Chiefs Hotel in Geelong actually John Geelong yeah uh but boy that was that was uh that was a difficult environment to do anything in that little that little um cave underneath the pub and that was never really going to get us far and uh, things certainly stepped up when we went and met Bill. I think it was Bill Best, the brewer at the time down at the Grand Ridge Brewery so we hadn't met Eric, we just got to know Bill and um, Bill was great and supportive and um, Eric no doubt was behind the scenes and gave it gave it the nod for it, for it to happen. Um, but yeah, so that's and that the beer really dramatically improved at that point and Dave was going down and working with Bill and then Bill um disappeared. I can't remember what happened, but Bill left and Eric came to Dave I think at that point and said, Dave, look you know the plant. Can you can you be our brewer for a while? And um Dave had to give a very good explanation to his wife as to why he should leave Melbourne and live in uh, <laughs> Live on the stage of an old, disused town hall in Murboo North for a year, and um, and brew the Grand Ridge beers and and our beer, but it was great because they've got fantastic commercial level experience. He just got thrown in the deep end, and he he had to you know
0: it was sink or swim, and he and he swam. So it was it was a great opportunity for us. Would you recommend you know that there's a lot of breweries starting up these days? Would you recommend the sink or swim approach, or do you think that if you did did it again, you'd do a little bit more planning and be a little bit more um you know, proactive and professional in in, in the founding of the brewery?
2: I think that a lot of guys like us start, and they haven't got any money, so the only way to do it is to get some some beer contract brewed, and hopefully you get involved in that process yourself so you really learn um, how beer is made commercially. So it's a great way to learn and uh, a low-risk way of getting in. And and it was the only option that we had, um, you know, when we first went to the bank um, or the banks, we knocked on the doors and no one was interested in going to give us any money at all. We didn't have any assets. And um, as you might've seen on the website, we had Dave ZH Holden and two surfboards and three mountain bikes between us. And that was our, that was written on our statement of position that the banks <laughs> wanted to see. And they, they laughed at us and said, go away. So it was the only way for us to start, and I think it's a good way to start. Um,
0: yeah. With, with with all the breweries that are springing up now, um, you know, I guess you guys were real pioneers, as we said. Um, but, but there are a lot of breweries springing up now. Is is there the risk that the market, um, because with, with the contract brewing route, there are really no barriers to entry. Um, could that ultimately hurt the market if there is a rush of people uh, who don't have a um, buy in to to what they're doing, and they can just set up a brand, put anything out there um, does it have the potential to hurt the market
2: yeah I think it I think there's a, a risk there, and we're certainly seeing a huge amount of new beer brands flood the market, and most of them are coming from just a couple of you know contract breweries, or a lot of them are. I think that it's important that that your brand has soul and um I think Mountain Goat had sold almost from the start, it was, it was probably a unique story at the time and we certainly had the plan um, in place to get our own plants um, quite quickly, which we did. Um, so I think there needs to be a story uh, behind the brand and there needs to be an element of, as I say, sold and not just you know marketing buyers getting a beer, a contract brewed and then sold to the chains. What usually seems to happen is that those brands end up getting discounted. Sorry, that's my email. <laughs> <laughs> um, those brands will sometimes get discounted, and then it just yeah, it's just the chains fighting chains, and and the the margin erodes and erodes and. And then the brand disappears, and I and I don't say that happens all the time, but it certainly happened many times we've seen with brands come and go. But
0: can so yeah, end, I think Sorry to interrupt, a... but can can that in itself hurt guys like uh, you know Mountain Goat, like like yourselves, um, where the, the public who see that beer is constantly being discounted, um, that they expect all beer to be discounted. You know, um, a, a beer like um, Steamer, which is one of your big sellers. If it's going up against a contract brewed, you know, just a a pure marketing company that the big chains discount, does that then make it harder for you to sell your steam ale at a uh, premium price without downward pressure on your prices?
2: Yeah, it does. I guess it does short term. What we see is that um, brands get put on promotion, especially through the chains and whatever's on promotion, as long as it's a decently crafted beer and it's presented well and it's below $20 a six pack, often that will sell really well. And so, yeah, there are months where our beer takes a bit of a hit, but it always seems to bounce back. And those brands that don't really have a soul or a story and are regularly on discount just seem to eventually, they often just disappear. So, yeah, we probably do take a little bit of a hit, and there's probably a constant cycle of that happening. But we're still growing and growing quite... In fact, we're growing quicker than we've ever grown in our history. So um, it's not killing
1: us. What's, what's driving that more, Cam? Is that um, the... Because, I mean, you proudly sort of say, you know, you're expanding the number of taps that you have, um, or, you know, venues in which you have a tap, uh, and uh, mostly local... Although you have started branching out into interstate more recently, is that the is that where it's growing, or is it in the um, the packaged, um, if you like, another three thirty mil, the steam ale high tail? It's area? happening.
2: It's happening. Uh, it's happening everywhere. We're seeing. We're definitely seeing a big lift in tap accounts at the moment, uh, and that's a great thing, especially through the colder months. We've we've had some of our biggest, uh, in fact, easily our biggest cake sales weeks. Through the middle of winter this year, which is quite exciting, given that the weather's now warming up, because it makes you think summer might be might really go off. Uh, but it's happening. It's it's happening with kegs. It's happening with um, with three thirty mm crates, steam and high tail, and rare breeds. We're probably seeing the fastest growth, but coming off a much lower base. So um, you know we're brewing sort of between a thousand and two thousand cartons of of any rare breed release at any time, and that's just going quicker than we can it's going faster than we can brew it so there's growth across all areas from the entry levels you know stuff that we make like steam right through to you know uh to a black ipa in rare breed bottle which is very expensive so it's good it's exciting sort of showing that all parts of the craft beer market are opening up yeah
0: it's a very good time over the 15 years you've been at the forefront of some of the, the big issues. You guys were the early campaigners um, taking the excise battle to Canberra. What are some of the, the biggest issues that you've had to uh, take on um, since you founded Mountain Goat? Um, uh, I'd say,
2: <laughs> and it's not unique to micro breweries, but, uh, but it's especially relevant. Is probably just this constant pressure on cash flow and because of the excise arrangement and the way we have to pay before the beer leaves the brewery and uh, that, yeah, it's just probably just surviving and um, just keeping cash in the business because although we're growing quicker now than we've ever grown, do you reckon we've got any more cash around? <laughs> Absolutely not because it's all going into, into inventory, um, so having to hold bigger inventories and we're carrying more debt. Um, so that's the that's the biggest challenge and that, and it really does come back largely to excise, which is why I spent so many years going up to Canberra, especially with Paul Holgate and others and trying, <laughs> trying to, you know, get the word, the message through there. And what's happened recently with the, with the excise break has been fabulous, but it's, it's just the start, I think. And, you know, hopefully it leads to more down the track with more work. Uh, but yeah, I'd say, um, I'd say that's a big challenge and also dealing, probably dealing with chains, learning how to deal with chains um, is, a, is a real challenge as well. And that's a real, and that's a common challenge for micro as they grow.
0: And what, I guess, what are the tips that you've got then for dealing with the chains?
2: <laughs> I don't, I still haven't got it worked out. I, saw, I thought, I thought six months ago, I did have it worked out and then I thought, no, I really don't have this worked out. And as new, uh, Buyers step in; uh, it's sort of all the rules change, and you've got to start again and develop the relationship and kind of relearn it again. So things happen; new things happen all the time, and I still haven't got it worked out. (laughs) I had a long chat with one of the chains this morning, actually, and we got some good news about um, increased distribution. But it's um yeah, you don't you never want for one customer to have too much, you know, represent too much of your business, but ultimately it. You know, chains do become a significant part of your business as you're growing national craft band, brand. And um, so, it's important to balance that. And um, yeah, it just requires a lot of attention and um, and creativity and, and communication. I think as you go. So I have, I have got tips. I wish I did, but I, I haven't got it worked out. It's it, a bit. One the, sorry, so I was just going to say quickly. One of the challenges now is that probably the twenty dollar retail barrier. So. You know, you're probably seeing craft six-packs put their heads up over $20, and when you do that, craft beer sales slow dramatically. So that's a real challenge at the moment, um, trying to either keep your beer below $20 retail a six-pack or educate um, consumers and retailers, uh, make people realize you, know, you can't hold your price forever and lose more and more money every year, but it's, you've got to actually pay more than $20 for six-pack. So that's a that's a bit of a challenge that I'm working on at
0: the moment. It must be a fairly uh, fraught relationship dealing with the, uh, you know, particularly the big two. As you said, you know, that there's real advantages in terms of getting the beer out. They've got a massive distribution network. But at the same time, you know, if you look through, not necessarily in their bottle shops, but if you walk the aisles of Coles or Woolworths at the moment, you know, whereas once upon a time, there might have been five brands of Corn Flakes. Now there's two, generally Kellogg's and their home brand. Um... Do you worry in the future, as you said, as they become bigger customers, that um once the organic growth of the craft beer market slows and those guys need to keep growing their profits that some of the vertical integration might come in where you know they've already taken strategic stakes in some breweries and you might start getting squeezed um, even further on your prices or you find yourself competing with their home brands um, and suddenly you've got a business that's built on dealing with them but it's becoming harder and harder to deal with them um is that something that plays in your mind
2: yeah it is i guess there is an element of that i think you just got to you know talking about the soul of the brand before that's where this becomes really important you've got to make sure that you know you your brand really does have a soul and a story and it continues to be relevant and and you could, yeah, you've got to keep yourselves relevant. And I think the chain sort of see us as a brand that they feel that it's good to have because we're reasonably recognized and our beer, I think, hopefully, is mostly pretty, pretty consistent. Um, so I guess that's up to us to, you know, that, that challenge is certainly there, but we've just got to keep ourselves relevant and keep, I guess, reinventing ourselves and keep, we've got to keep sort of driving in the product from our end. We can't just put the beer in the chains and just expect it to sell. We've got to work on creative ways to build our brand around the country. Uh, so that's, that's probably the key to success going forward,
0: I think. Uh, one of the issues that often comes up when people are talking about uh, the problems facing craft breweries, and often it's the consumer, is the, the whole notion of the tap contract. Is that something that you guys bang your head about um, or, or you know, bang up against uh, regularly?
2: It used to be. It used to be a real problem,
0: but the last
2: couple of years, especially in Melbourne, and I can't speak too much for Interstate because I in know the market so well, but I'd say, you know, that most of the inner city good little bars that did have contracts with big breweries say most of them aren't renewing these days because they want, uh, you know, their punters want a better range of local of good craft beers, and the big brewers can't always offer that. Full range, so we're seeing dozens and dozens of taps opening up and uh, becoming independent for the first time, and uh, so that's fabulous. And you know, you walk into so many pubs in Melbourne now, even the Royston directly over the road from the brewery, and I don't think there's any mainstream beer on tap there anymore. It's um, it's just all it's all craft, and how how fantastic! And there's probably about ten or twelve taps, and um, so we're just seeing that happen again and again and again through inner city pubs. So that's, that's pretty
0: exciting. We've been Brisbane's been a notorious beer desert for a long time, and we've had a couple of fantastic little bars open up, and that seems to have put pressure on the bigger, the popularity and success of those um, small bars seems to have put a lot of pressure on the bigger bars to stock craft beer. Um, but then I'm also hearing, you know which has been a really positive sign. But I've also started to hear, particularly since the little creatures buy out by Lion Nathan, that uh, a lot of venues that have been starting to loosen. Um, their grip on uh, contracts or you know let their their contracts um, slide are starting to think well now I can have the best of both worlds I can have you know a whole range of contract uh, or a whole lot of great craft brands and still keep my contract is that a worry for you with you know brewery consolidations like the sale of little creatures
2: well I guess I mean yeah I guess it is, but uh once again, I think you've just gotta keep reinventing yourself and you've gotta keep yourself relevant and you've gotta you gotta build your own brand, so you've gotta think creatively behind the scenes to you know get your beer in the hands of hunters, however you do that uh so that it, you know you're the beer of choice for a certain demographic or a certain sort of target market, so there's always gonna be these challenges. Um, you just got to take responsibility for your own brand and
1: um, and keep it relevant does it all, does it almost seem uh, from within Mountain goat that that mountain goat has kind of become almost two headed in that you've got the uh, if you like the the popular the mainstream almost mainstream brands in the the tail and the steam in the three thirty ml bottles but then there's almost this other side of the business which is the the rare breeds uh, um, and the the seasonals and the available only at the brewery. Sort of beers, so you're kind of, I guess, really nicely aiming at both uh, the new drinker coming into, you know, perhaps stepping away from mainstream or coming off cider or coming off bourbon or you know whatever, looking to get into craft beer, and then you've also got the, I guess, the aficionados and the beer nerds and the uh, uh, the guys who are already inside the craft uh, scene. You're able to sort of, I guess, keep both happy. Well, that's the hope. I mean, you
2: know, Steam and Hightail. Uh, pays the bills, and without those, there wouldn't be a business, especially when we brought steam out a few years ago that that really got us back on our feet and and turned our business around um but the really fun stuff for us to make is is you know is the rare breed and releases and so um yeah, we get to i mean yeah it's it's ideal it's just great that both ends of the market are growing so quickly, and we've got products in both ends of the market, so yeah, it's deliberate and it's fun that way and it keeps it interesting and um seems to be working for us
1: and then leading on from that you've got the the brewery bar which i guess a lot of whether they're contract brewers or some you know brewers that don't have a venue in which to to come and enjoy the beers how what how important is that to you not just as a a, an alternative stream of revenue yeah um and for those who haven't been down there um it's 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 legendary it's iconic it's all that sort of thing it's only wednesday night friday night and then you you're you're allowed to do uh functions on a saturday night but for the goat bar is only open wednesdays and and fridays how important is that that you're able to then i guess connect with the the punter and uh talk about the beer do the brewery tours and that sort of thing it's
2: absolutely paramount and um
1: if if,
2: you know, I ever get a call or I have a catch up with some guys who are talking about getting into the industry and wanting to do something, every time I say, you know, can you possibly uh find a way to get some retail components set up and not just to be able to retail beer at a higher margin but because it's, you know, just that marketing tool. It's our easily our biggest marketing tool and we have hundreds and hundreds of people come through every week. But also, especially in the early days, being able to retail a small amount of your beer at a much higher price and getting cash on the night um, might sound money hungry, but geez, it's, it's a hard business. It's hard. I was going to say, it sounds like I'm getting
0: gouged every time I walk in there now. Um, well, you're cutting out the middleman is what, is what Cam means.
2: Yeah, it might be you know 1% of our beer that we sell through our bar here, it's probably less now. But it just um, it's kept us afloat um, especially in the early days when we used to open up once a month in the old in Crown Street over the road and and uh, you know we'd open up the roller door and three or four hundred people would turn up and crowd onto the street and we'd go geez and um, and that would pay more than you know pay our rent for the month and you know pay some wages and it's just so important um, and it continues to be a really important part of our business absolutely
0: and I think and it sounds like it's a lesson that uh, Matilda Bay has uh, learned yeah, from the mountain Yeah, look, I mountain think very playbook. smart
2: moving from Dandenong into Port Melbourne. Yeah, I think very, very smart move. Just, yeah, will help build their brand and uh, probably pick up some dollars from that retailing. And um, I think it's the smartest thing they could have done. And,
1: and this, Cam, without um, sort of blowing too much sunshine up their skirt and getting, allowing them to get big heads, but to to what extent... Uh, do you also credit, I guess, Ma- uh, Mountain Goat's success in terms of growing the business to people like Tom Delmont and Natalie Hall and more recently Wags? Um, your, if you like your your, your road goats, the, the guys who are out there doing the, um, you know, teeing up tastings and, and helping to train staff, delivering beer, all those sorts of elements. Because I, personally, I think that's almost inestimable in terms of the, the value to to the brand and that what you were talking about before about the whole soul of the you know, telling the story and, and, and that sort of thing. Would you agree? Oh
2: absolutely. We're very, very lucky to have those people that we have on the road and they um you know, we don't go looking for people with necessarily a holiday sales background. In fact Tom had none. Um, you know, he's he had a government job, he played bass in a punk band. He, he just, but he had he had the ethos uh, we could tell straight away, and he had burning passion for craft beer, and um, he's just turned out to be a fabulous rep. And look, yeah, Will now who's um, doing Nat's role while she's been on maternity leave has, has turned out to be great. And we've got Ed in Sydney and um, and Wags our national sales manager. Yeah, these people. It's just so important that they that they that there's a, a you know. A cultural fit, a fantastic cultural fit, and they they do represent your brand, and they're all we've got really, because you know we don't place ads, um, we rely on these guys and people coming into the. Company. That's the only way we can really grow and build the brand. So, yeah, we owe a lot. We owe a lot to them. They're very important to us.
1: And another thing that must really please you, um, I guess, on uh, and that whole the number of brewers who have cut their teeth at Mountain Goat or have spent time at Mountain Goat. And then gone on and, I guess, you know, carved their, their way in the big wide world. And you know, people like AG, who's now at Mornington. Uh, I think uh, Jane Lewis obviously was there for quite a while as the, as the head brewer. Uh, and, and look, you can probably name another another dozen. Yeah, definitely. Those people have played
2: very big roles in our, in our business, getting it to where it is now. And it's really cool to see them um, depart and go on and take on other challenges and you know, and, and rise to those challenges. And that's, you know, Jane's doing great and AG's producing more beers than perhaps sitting with anyone around the country in terms of new beers coming out at the moment. So it's really great to see them go on and, and have a great
0: career in, in craft beer. We have tweeted that we were speaking to you, so we've got a couple of questions that have come in. Uh, a lot of them seem to be about the rare breeds. Um, I guess, first of all, what's coming up uh, with rare breeds? And that comes from uh frozen summers and, and and jace radical brewer we've got um so for our
2: 15th birthday we've got um triple hightail coming out for the first time so you might remember we did a double hightail for our 10th birthday and we're trying to think out of something else crazy up for the 15th, and Dave just thought, well, why don't we just go up another level again with the high of beer that sort of started it all for us? And I um, haven't even tasted it yet, but um, I think it's gone in a bottle. We're just waiting on labels to arrive, and it's only 250 cartons, so it's a very short run, but um, we're going to have it with us at these venues that we go to for our 15th birthday tour, and a few other you know good independent stores will get it. So that'll be fun. And after that, we've got Rapunzel coming back. I don't know if you remember Rapunzel from a few years ago, so sort of strong Belgian blonde ale. Uh, so that'll be here in time for warmer months, for summer. Uh, so that's sort of about as far ahead as we've sort of got
0: locked in at the moment. Frozen Summers uh, wants to know, will you do anything crazy with uh, rare breed like a sour? Uh,
2: yeah, very likely. At some point, we've talked about it and... Um, yeah, I'm sure that will happen. Uh, we've we'll just got to, yeah, it'll just be at the right time. And when we've got it worked out, we've, yeah, that's definitely on the
1: cards. And one of those venues that you uh, mentioned that you'll be taking the, uh, the 15th birthday celebration on the road to uh, might be a little bit inaccessible for some and, and perhaps a, a venue that, that many haven't heard of. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the Goat uh, Goes to Goat Island?
2: Yeah, well, look, we just thought, um, you know, last for 10 years we went to sort of the obvious places and we're sort of doing that again, but uh, we just thought we've got to throw something in there that's a bit of fun, and uh, I did some research. We're trying to find a remote and very small, interesting sort of outback bars, and one morning I came across the Goat Island Lodge in um, in the wetlands of the Northern Territory down the Adelaide River, and I just, I mean, the name obviously got my attention, and um and the more I read about it, and once I saw the website and found out about this guy called Happy, I just thought it just looked too good not to um find out more about. So I got on the phone and rang him, and um, and it just sounds unreal. So he's he's it, it, it's an hour drive from Darwin Airport, sort of southeast, and then you jump. You've got to find someone with a boat or a helicopter. And we've organised a guy with a boat, and um, he's meeting us at this launching ramp, and we go down the river for an hour sort of flat out and um and get to the Goat Island Lodge and this guy called Happy just lives there by himself and he's got a few rooms and a little licensed bar. He just sells Forex and um and he just looks after the locals. So um yeah, who knows? Who knows what's gonna happen. It'll be it'll just be a great adventure. I've never been to that part of Australia. I don't think Dave has either and uh so we're gonna apparently the river is infested with salt rocks, so we're gonna the guy with the boat said, yeah, boys, I'll bring some meat. We'll feed the crocs on the way down. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> we'll meet some, some of Happy's mates and we'll pour some beers for them that they've probably, I'm sure they've never tasted anything like before. And uh, And we'll see what happens. We've got the guy who's going to film it and we've got um, James from Crafty Pint coming along who's going to ride it up and take a few photos. So um, hopefully we can document it and um, it should be a lot of fun.
1: I'm just interested to... Uh, I guess, you know, using the crystal ball, looking ahead to try to work out who's going to be more surprised, I guess. You blokes turning up from sort of, you know, in a city in a suburban Richmond craft brewery to the middle of nowhere, surrounded by all these crocs, or Happy, who is going to experience perhaps will very possibly be uh, a fifteenth anniversary triple hightail ale. <laughs>
2: Who knows? It could go any
1: direction. I just, uh, I just yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. Alison, <laughs> uh, maybe you could look at um, Calming the Savage Beasts by, uh, if he's if you're going to you know, throw a few tidbits of uh, raw meat over the side, perhaps you could marinate some, uh, maybe even some goat uh, in, you know, triple hightail or something like that and see if it just kind of, they might just get all mellow and chill out and join join <laughs> the party.
2: I think that's worth a
0: shot. I like it. Mate, just uh, dodging back to a uh, probably a more serious um, topic at the moment, looking at as you grow and you get your beer into more and more venues, um, how hard is it to uh, do quality control on the venues that are serving your product? This is a question that's come in from uh, Greg McGill, who's a New Zealand brewer. Um, and he said, uh, "Does do you have any, do, do any quality control on venues serving your product? He had a few uh pints were a little bit below par when he was in melbourne recently
2: ah yeah look it's definitely it's probably the biggest challenge that we have you know a little craft brewery without the um the vast resources of a big parent company you know at your disposal it's definitely a challenge and it's it's more of a challenge probably is when you're sending your beer further into warmer climates you know like parts of you know queensland and wa and so the beers and in slow-moving stores and in stores that don't necessarily rotate their stock. Uh, so you've got, <laughs> you've got heat and time in the bottle, and then you've got lack of care at the retail level that you're trying to deal with. So, look, that's an absolute constant challenge for us. Um, and as we've got more of our own people on the road, um, I guess a big part of their role is making sure that beer is being rotated properly and moving through. And really, if a, if a draft account isn't moving through you know, at least a keg a week, you've got to wonder whether it's good for them and good for you uh, to be on tap there because the beer's just not going to be tasting as fresh as it could or should be. So, yeah, that's a good, really good question. It's the biggest challenge probably for for small independent craft brewers and especially as you grow and you're sending your beer further and further away. So, it's, yeah, it's a constant challenge for
0: us. I guess the flip side of that question, um, the where you said that if you're not going through a, a keg a week, um, there's been a tendency uh, that I've noticed that some bars, you know, want to have everything on, um, you know, they've got 150 uh, bottled beers, they've got 10, 10 beers on uh, tap, anything that's new and interesting, they've got to have. And, you know, a lot of the beers you need to buy, you can't just buy one keg because of the way that the distribution works. And, uh, I was in one venue uh, recently that had at least a dozen kegs of US hoppy beer um, just stacked up inside the bar. Um, you know, we, with a uh, delivery date two weeks before and a package date, you know, four months before. Um, so even that the big venues that are going through a lot of beer, you know, are, are just stockpiling it. Um, and not serving it fresh, and you know these are venues that hold themselves out to be craft beer venues, and yet they don 't seem to understand the fundamentals about looking after you know good quality unpasteurized craft beer um, Is that a problem you know for you you know when when you 've got venues that just want to outdo each other and have everything on um, and yet they're probably not looking after your beer the way you would like them to
2: yeah it's definitely a big challenge uh, it's a constant challenge and um you know, not that many pubs have got big cool rooms. It's fine if they've got big cool rooms and they can pop the kegs in there then great, no worries. But um yeah, people yeah, I'm horrified sometimes when I hear that, um, you know, we sold a certain pub a couple of kegs of something special and they haven't got to them yet and it's now four or five months down the track and you know, the hot profile starts to drop off a bit, especially the aroma and look yeah, you can't you can never completely control it, but all you can do is educate and encourage people. Um to do the right thing, uh, but yeah, I don't, I don't know how we're going to solve that any time soon. It just, I get it, just is education, just getting out and talking to people and getting your reps to make sure it's at the front of their front of their mind uh, every time they visit a
0: pub. Would you not sell a, a venue of beer if they weren't able to demonstrate that they're looking after it properly? Because I guess it's your brand, not theirs, that's uh, really hurting.
2: Well, you just have the you would have a very direct, frank conversation with them and say look if you can absolutely guarantee and undertake to do the right thing and look after it then you know let's do it and um but if they don't it's not good for them and it's not good for us and usually when you have that conversation people acknowledge that and they realize it and they're like oh, okay fair enough you know so you know we don't often hold back and say look we're not going to give you you know this cake because of something that's happened in the past but we certainly has an impact on when we're doing allocations of exotic special things it certainly makes us think about who we're going to allocate cakes to in front of others but um yeah you just
0: hope with time people will learn the lessons and do the right thing by the beer a couple of questions come in on facebook um glenn redmond asks what pressures from the big boys inverted commas has mountain goat faced both in the marketplace and uh, uh in attempts to buy you out um have there been any attempts to buy you out
2: yeah Yep, they have. We've had some knocks on the door over the last few years, and um, uh, you know that's really all they've been. We've never really entertained any conversation. We've just sort of found ways to politely say thank you, but uh, no, or it's not the right time, or whatever. Um, so yeah, this I guess we're at that stage. We're at that level now where people asking that question more and more of us, uh, and. And, yeah, there have been some approaches. But, look, we're, it might sound naive and stupid, uh, but, you know, we truly we didn't start this to just sell it out. And we would have done it by now if, we were, if, we, if we'd set it up for that purpose. Uh, we're having a really good time and Dave and I are getting on well. We're working with wonderful people here. We're growing faster than we've ever grown. And it just doesn't seem like a good time to, you know, to just sell out. And I don't know what else I'd do. (laughs) We're having a great great time and as we can afford to employ more good quality people, it actually is becoming more fun and slightly less stressful than it was a few years ago too because these new people that we're putting on are doing the various roles much better than Dave and I ever did those various roles Um, because you can't do everything as you know. So um, look, yeah, I won't say that we won't ever partner with somebody on some level. But but now is not the time. We're having we're having a ball, and why
0: why mess with it? Um, question from Renee Matthew, who's one of the uh, people behind Beer Masons. Um, if you had your time over again, uh, would you do anything differently? Um, and what's been your best decision, and what's been your worst decision since you've been in business? <laughs>
2: um, hmm.
0: God, they're really difficult questions.
2: I think that. I mean, I just wouldn't have the energy to go and do what we've done over again. Um, now I'm 41, <laughs> and we did it the hard way. We, did, we you know, worked our guts out physically and mentally, you know, emotionally, and um, we really believed in it, and nothing was going to stop us from, from survival, I guess, or it felt like that. Um, so we, you know, you can't keep up that level of mental and physical activity, uh, forever. And so, yeah, I guess I probably go at it quite so frenetically <laughs> next time. Do it would have been smarter, use your time better, probably get some more support financially earlier on, but it there, there wasn't much of a choice back then. Cause there wasn't a craft beer movement. No one really understood what the hell we were trying to do. Um, so, uh, I don't know if I'm slowly answering these questions or not. <laughs> it's the best thing I've ever done in my life is to start Mountain Goat with Dave. Um, it's sort of mapped out our careers, our futures. Um, you, know, you, sign a, you sign up a, a document with a bank and you, you suddenly feel very locked in and then you sign a lease on a building for a five or 10-year term and you once again, you're, kind of, you're very locked in. Uh, so with that comes a great deal of responsibility. But um, a great deal of satisfaction too as you slowly chip away and you build your brand and your sales grow. So it's been, it's really given us wonderful, you know, it's wonderful 15 years, I have to say. Um, and if we're going to start again tomorrow, I don't think we do it the way that we've done it uh, this time. But um, but it's been very enjoyable and it's still a lot of fun.
0: Have I answered those questions? I think so. Um, the only, uh, actually, there was one part, second part to one of the questions that I didn't ask. Uh, any advice to home brewers out there?
2: Oh, well, I guess home
0: brewers wanting to go pro.
2: Oh, wanting to go pro. Well, there's more and more opportunity as the days go by um, for home brewers to, you know, to get involved in the industry and to enrol with Pete Aldred down at Ballarat Uni or wherever else they want to learn. And I think I say. Guys that want to get into the industry, if they want to be brewers, I say volunteer some time. Most microbrewers haven't got enough money to just employ someone without a great deal of experience, but offer to volunteer some time in breweries to build up some commercial experience and uh, get a realistic take on what it's like to be a brewer and to develop contacts. And if you get in and work hard and get on well with the owners of the business, you'll probably find yourself in some level of employment before too long.
0: Uh, so that's probably my tip for getting, in the, getting into the industry. Okay. Well, we're coming up to 50 minutes. So, uh, Cam. Perfect. Yeah. Is there anything you want to say, Cam? Is, no. Uh, got anything to plug? Anything to sell?
2: Well, just <laughs> we love to people for a beer for our 15th uh, trip. So it's on our website. Um, we're, we're going to now. post it
0: on Brews News. We've got the, uh, the, the details. So we'll post it uh, as part of this story.
2: Fabulous. Uh, we just love to catch up with people and have a beer, you know, brewers and punters, and um, it's a wonderful industry and uh, it's getting stronger and stronger, and, um, and it's an exciting time to be in it. So we're very grateful that we're still here and part of it, and great that you guys are getting out there and supporting and spreading the word. You guys and crafty pint and others are, um, are, you know, are educating people and getting them off the mainstream stuff and onto something better, and um, and that's good for all of us. So. Thanks,
0: thanks to you guys. Oh mate, we're happy to do it, but we'd better let you go and answer some of those emails that you've been getting. <laughs> <laughs> Before I start, I didn't think of that. That's <laughs> <laughs> okay. Cam, Hines, always... no, that's right.
1: Dan, Dan Summers will, uh he's already uh, typing out an email complaining about the uh, the noise in the background. I'm sure.
0: <laughs> Cam, uh, thank you very much for joining us once again. Thank you for all of your great beers and. Uh, Good luck and have fun celebrating your fifteenth anniversary.
1: Yeah,
2: thanks, Pete, Matt. We'll we'll see you soon, I'm sure. Cheers. Absolutely.
1: No worries, Cam. And here's here's to the next fifteen years.
0: Yeah. All right. Cheers, you guys. And yes, that was Cam Hines, co founder of the Mountain Goat Brewery. Prof, what did you make of all that? Terrific. Um look, unashamedly a a big fan of the brewery
1: as a business and uh proud to call both Cam and Dave um, amongst my friends. Um, they've got a, a great crew out there. And you know, for those lucky enough to be able to either live in or near Melbourne or, to, or if you do come down to Melbourne on a Wednesday or Friday night, get out to to go, it, it, it really is just like, you know, being welcomed into somebody's family home that just happens to have a very large homebrew kit over in the corner um, at a rather well-stocked bar. But, um, you know, friendly staff, um, and, and look, we probably didn't mention as much about the staff specifically, but certainly in terms of, you know, the whole family thing, a lot of those guys have been there since day dot. You know, Sandra runs the, well, she runs the brewer pretty much. She she sort of coordinates all the functions and um, all the bits and pieces like that as well as running the the bar itself. Um, has been there since day dot. Uh, the brewers, they tend to, as so I say, they They've had the brewers that we we know who have gone on to bigger and better things. They don't sort of come in and just kind of go, oh, you know, this isn't for me. They really sort of uh, are welcomed there and, and become part of the furniture. So it's um, it, it it's great, just great, I think, from a from a brand perspective.
0: Yeah, no, I, I agree. You know, it's a, just one of those brands, and you know, they've been around for such a long time. You know, for people that have just joined the craft beer movement um, and listening to the show, you know, Mountain Goat goes back. Predates uh, little creatures. Um, predates some of the big brands um, that have been around. Um, I think it'd be fair to say that big brands like Matilda Bay um, were sort of lying. Uh, you know, uh, yeah. Don't. say that uh, They're lying. No, 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 no. Like, not, not. Yeah. You know, well, uh, a little guy. bit underused. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, yes. I'll let it that out. <laughs> lying under. Lying underutilised um, at the time. You know, not really sure what to do. Um, Squires hadn't started um, until a year or two later. Um, I think Squires was... 2000-ish? Yeah, 88. Um, oh, I think Squires uh, Squires goes back to 98, I think, because um, Chuck Han's anniversaries are, you know, 88, 98, 2008. They do something special. Yeah, we might have to just um,
1: get the historians uh, on the payroll. Yes, yeah. Check <laughs> out <skills laughs> because I reckon he might <laughs> be doing... Uh, um, oh,
0: Han Longbrew may have fallen by the wayside so by ninety eight, maybe. But um... I'm pretty sure he founded the brewery in eighty eight, and then yeah, that's possible. Uh, he, he founded Han in eighty eight. Um, that folded, or yeah, you know, was bought out by Lion in about ninety two, from memory. Um, ninety eight, he went back and asked for his brewery back and started the Squires brand. Um, and then I think, you know, 2008 he celebrated 20 years or something. But
1: as, as discussed here um, on Radio Brews News in, I reckon, episode four or something like that when we spoke to Chuck and recalled the, the the whole James Squire concept was given to Toohey's to use for their premium brands and they said, no, we don't want it.
0: And Chuck basically said, well, yep. if you don't want it, can I have it? Exactly, but... Uh, Anytime that we use a date, we will go back and check it because we wouldn't want to be uh, using check. the wrong dates now. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we, dates we and times We wouldn't vary. want to be using. <laughs> are you reading off the bottom of a certain brewery's bottle there? Uh, or uh, or? Individual dates and times may vary.
1: <laughs> and listen, speaking, speaking of gaps uh, between starting a thought and then finishing it, we opened today with uh, a, a mention of minimum chips. And then we minimum did, Chips, yes. Yeah. And then
0: we didn't kind of, um, I guess, tie the knot on that. No, well, we didn't. Uh, anyone that reads the website regularly will know that uh, we broke some... You know, we're getting good at breaking this news thing, Prof. Uh, yes, Minimum Chips, which is the new beer from Matilda Bay, coming out in November, uh, we understand. I um, Still don't know... It's a Golden Lager, um, which, you know, as somebody tweeted, Matilda Bay is... Starting to get a few lagers now these days. They've got Big Helga, um, which uh, you mentioned in a podcast recently that you were enjoying very much. Yes, crack. Actually, it is a crackingly good beer. I really enjoy um, the Big Helga. It's never really broken in the way that uh, Fat Yak has, Um, but and, and I'm not quite sure why that is. I you know. I think that it never really had the support. I think it's part of the general woes that Matilda Bay's faced. I think it's a very good beer and would find an audience. Um, yeah. I also understand a few publicans mentioned that um, when they had it on, you know, I, I speak to publicans a lot about you know the, their beer selection and things like that. And I, I understand that. Remember uh, when Cub brought out their what was it their Han? Oh no, that was the um, Pure Blonde White. Their sort of faux Belgian white style beer that they made a big splash with about 18 months ago. Do you remember yeah, that? Yeah. You couldn't go past a bus shelter without seeing it advertised? Yeah. I understand that uh, a lot of brewers were, um, you know, sort of a lot of publicans, publicans. put that on um, and took off Big Helga. So any traction that Big Helga might have been getting um, lost. i lost, you know,
1: well, I wonder too, you know, Big Helga, it's a girl's name. Do people, is there a perception that uh, it must be a girl's beer? A beer designed for
0: women. I, I don't know. I've, I've, it's quite possible. I've never actually heard anyone say that, um, and I no, think it I mean, sums up. Honesty, it's, a, it's a German only, style only lager. To
1: me then. Yeah, you know that, and I know that. But you could have called yeah. it. You could have called it lager. Well, that, that's true, uh, but or big, you know, I big leather the, pants. Uh, oh, big no, leather. that might have <laughs> well, been
0: hinged on the itchy green pants, but. Anyway, mate, what do you think? What what do you well? The itchy green pants wasn't even a an itch in uh, its brewer's pants. Um, undies mm. um, when that came on for to really stretch that <laughs> metaphor. Um, but you know, prof, what do you think of the um, Matilda Bay naming conventions? I, I I just get a little bit of a suspicion. You know, you, you look at Redback, which is a strong name. Um, you know, a, a dog bolter. You've got these names that aren't necessarily funny names, but they are names in... We've published a bit of history of Matilda Bay um, this week. Yeah, designed so to be designed to be catchy and and I guess memorable, and that's what you'd want from a, a brand. So memorable, but I just get the feeling that since Fat Yak, um, and, and when you speak to a lot of the sort of CUB marketing guys, they put a lot of store in the fact that it's the Fat Yak's name that has seen it erupt, and I just get this feeling that they're trying far to out, too out much fat, yak, thought, fat Yak with their they they're just trying to be a little bit too clever and a little bit too funny and a little bit too you know they're putting too much stock in the beer's name and not enough in you know some of the day-to-day selling like you know supporting their brand in the hotels and when they get their next big idea you know maybe taking you know forcing their other beers out and then saying gee this big helga's not selling all that well yeah uh, uh, look, fair and comment plenty of you know, and plenty of people have also just linked to that have also sort of said that does it kind of dilute
1: the Matilda Bay Brand because it's not Matilda Bay Fat Yak. It's not Matilda Bay Big Helber, It's not Matilda Bay Minimum Chips necessarily. Good point. Whereas Murray's Angry Man, Murray's Sean's Fault, Murray's Heart of Darkness, there's there's very sort of more, I guess, more determined to link it to the brewery rather than just a single beer. But I'm sure the marketing departments will, will say, well, yeah, sometimes it's, it's better to, you know, because if you don't like one Matilda Bay beer, or you don't fall in love with that as a concept, do you then not try their other beers? But if you say, so, oh, Alpha Pale Ale, I'll try that not knowing that it's a Matilda Bay brand. I see... I did not think so, I don't know.
0: That, mate, no, I think that's a really good point. And a lot of people, like, Fat Yak is almost its own brand. People talk about, mm. could I have a Fat Yak? And they don't even know that it comes from Matilda Bay. Matilda yeah. Um, and, yeah, so... so it. it, it for all of its success, it hasn't really strengthened the Matilda Bay brand. And when we spoke to Vince, uh, Ryu, um, or Rui, Rui. the other day, um, no, Andre, no, Andre, Andre Ryu. <laughs> yes. When we spoke to Vince, um, a couple of weeks ago now, um, you know, he talked about them looking at their branding. And I think they're trying to strengthen the, um, the neck tags and make a more cohesive set. And the photos of, uh, minimum chips we posted this week, I think reveal how the others are going to look. Um, so, so we'll see a little bit more of a consistent theme there. Yeah. Um, but again, yeah, I, I just sort of wonder whether all of this emphasis on the clever name, um, with no story linking them, um, does take away from the Matilda Bay. Whereas James Squire, um, and you can say what you want about the link between the James Squire history and the actual brewery, but they have a very disciplined set of naming conventions. Everything is James Squire. Then you have the, um you know, well, we 40 lashes or 150 lashes
1: trouble then james squire all of which
0: yeah and, then and they the, all then link the back to the james squire name
1: yeah and then what it is
0: but each of the names links back to the james squire brand because they're supposedly parts of the james james squire history um or the james squire story yes. um which again is a really interesting um take because uh you know if if you go back 30 years um the, 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 my understanding is that the French naming conventions for their wine is based on the chateau, not on the grape style, and it's the new world wineries such as the Australian uh, wine industry that has been a real champion in creating the Riesling or the Sauvignon Blanc um, style, you know, where it's the grape or varietal. Um, so somebody doesn't need to know about the winemaker to Know the style of wine that they're making, they can just go, Oh, look, I love a soft blanc or I love a Pinot Gris, I'll get that. Um, yeah, whereas Squires seems to be going the other way a little bit with their branding rather than making the amber ale or the pilsner, the you know, the James Squire pilsner, they've put in that, and I can't even remember what they're called, you know, four I, wives I, I, for the
1: pilsner and nine tails for the four wives amber.
0: pilsner. There you go, you take a lot more interest. Than I do, I just I know I like the pilsner. So I order the pilsner. I just sort of wonder whether they're not taking it the other way and, you know, making it hard for people to understand. Well, gee, I like this. Yeah, um,
1: you, could, you could argue that they're having four cracks at, at um at the market with the same beer. I don't know what a yeah. I don't know what true. a pilsner is, but four wives—that sounds good. Or I know James Squire, or uh, that you know. I don't
0: know. Exactly, but when they go when they order a four wives, um. They go to another bar that maybe doesn't have it, and they don't know what style of beer yeah, they order. That's exactly. like four wives. Yeah, um, yeah. Look, I, I don't know, but anyway, mate, it, You know, it'll be interesting to see what Matilda Bay does. You know, we've been told that they've got a lot of focus on them. Um, I've certainly been heard, hearing lots of rumours about what the plans may entail. Um, it's it's interesting. Uh, For minimum chips, we do we we're a, No, no. Well, just oh, Matilda just Bay general. brand generally. Oh, Yeah, there, I've sorry. heard. Yeah, there may be a line of um, brew houses um, that they, they might be casting around for properties for um, brew houses, for example. Well, certainly, um, certainly the brewery bar
1: out at, out at Port Melbourne, I think, is um, is really starting to find its feet and find a, a market. And I think once people go there, they'll, they will they will better appreciate the beers.
0: Uh, and it, and it gives, that, like the James Squire brew houses, gives people something that they can identify. It's a, it's a face to the brewery. Yeah, um, exactly. Something tangible. And Kosciuszko has done that very successfully for hey, right. Lion. Um, yeah, you know, even though it's anything that you drink anywhere apart from Ginderbine comes from the James Squire Brewery. It's not the James Squire Kosciuszko Parallel. It's this this other thing. I'm actually writing a story about that um, about all of these fronts because I think once Little Creatures um, takes, you know, once Little Creatures enters the fold, you're going to see a lot more uh, contracts um, coming back where people only have. Squire, or you know, Lion Nathan beers, but it's going to look like they've got you know half a dozen different breweries on tap. But uh, yeah, I'll sort of get something out about that. Yeah, just make sure you check your dates. Yes, I'll do that. Anyway, Prof, mate, we've uh, been, been going on for a little bit. Yeah. We have. Been good chat. Um, congratulations. Uh, we, we won't sing happy birthday to the Goat Boys, but we will uh, no doubt have a beer with them as part of their royal tour. Exactly. And uh, we don't have a, our next guest locked in, do we, Prof? We'll have to... Uh, Make it a surprise. So listeners, stay with us. Thank you for your support and uh, just hold in and see who we've got next week. That's it.
1: And keep drinking good beer.
0: Good on you, Prof. Nice talking to you as ever. Always. See you next time.